0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the fifth episode of the Grape to Glass podcast. I am one of your hosts,
1: Joe, And I am Colby. And today we're going to be wrapping up with our quick education episodes before we get into the deep dive of winemaking. Although these first few episodes are a little slow, probably boring to most of you. And I'm sure most people already know what job titles are and generally how to taste wine. But Joe and I thought it would be good to put these episodes at the beginning. So when we do get into the further depth, the chemistry production and more advanced topics, you are all not out there super confused by what we're saying and what some of these terms may mean.
0: So to start this episode, we're going to answer the big question that most of you think is kind of like, yeah, duh. But what is wine? The generic answer is wine is an alcoholic beverage made from fermented fruit juice, most commonly fruit juice of grapes. Technically, any fruit and some vegetables is capable of being used for wine. I've had pineapple wine. I've had avocado wine. So some vegetable. I've had, what are some of the weird ones? Dragon fruit.
1: I've had strawberry wine,
0: strawberry, watermelon, I guess, cherry wine, Uh, the cherry and the apple though, I think has turned into more of the hard cider market, but they started out as wines. They're basically made in the same sense as wine is, but mostly we use grapes and wine grapes are definitely different than table grapes because your table grapes are what we call Thompson seedless grapes and wine grapes for one have seeds. They are small and sweet. So when they pick Thompson grapes, Thompson grapes are usually picked at about five to 10% sugar. We let our grapes plump up and then dehydrate back down. We pick them about, they're about the size of blueberries. They are sweet and they're about 25% sugar or so. We measure that in bricks. One degree bricks relates to one percent sugar. Bricks is defining a really a refraction of light, roughly based on the amount of sugar in the wine grape. Most wines originate from one single species of vine grape that we call Vitus vinifera. They are from France, wine grape originated from France and through selective breeding, Vitus vinifera has created our white grapes and our red grapes, including everything from Syrah to Chardonnay to Cabernet Franc. There are thousands of varieties, which we are hoping to do a varietal series sometime in the future and be able to go into more depth with some of the more popular varietals and why some varieties have become popular and more popular than others, and why some are only used for blending. I think I was told once in a wine class that there are about 4,000 different breeds, I guess, of vitis vinifera grapes. And the wine industry as a whole uses about 100 of them on a common basis, on a regular basis. So when you're at the grocery store or at a tasting room, you're looking at all these labels you will sometimes read the word vintage. Most commonly you'll see a year followed by the varietal like 2018 red blend or 2020 Pinot Noir. This may seem obvious, but not to everybody or it may not because honestly, I didn't know what it meant or even paid any attention to it before I got into the wine industry. I would go to the store and see a familiar label or a varietal and I knew I liked it. grabbed it and moved on. But when you are shopping for a wine or wine tasting, vintage can be super, super. The same wine from the same winery can differ from vintage to vintage. Vintage is really describing the year, right? What does vintage mean? Vintage refers to the year in which the grapes were picked, fermented, and processed into wine. Kind of. That Year really is established when the growing season was and when the grapes were picked. Because some fermentations can go over New Year's. Some of the native fermented wines tend to take longer. And sometimes, or some late harvest wines that are picked, they can be picked even into January and February, but they would be considered the previous year's vintage. Non-vintage wine are from different years blended together. So you may not see a year printed on a label. Champagne and port are good examples of non-vintage wine. So if you buy a champagne and all you see on there is champagne brute, that's describing the sweetness level. And that champagne comes from a couple or a bunch of different vintages of wine grapes put together. And, you know, that usually happens in more large format, cheaper bulk wine sort of settings where the non vintage comes in some canned wines and smaller formats leave it off the label just merely because you have limited label space in the United States, there are some government requirements for what we have to include on that can, that tiny can. and so in order to squeeze all that on and not to make it look like super small, we will leave things like vintage off or some of those words
1: also. Um- if you are buying a can, you can look at the bottom of the can and there will be a printed date or year of when it was canned. So you can kind of get a better idea if it says 2020, most likely that's going to be a vintage 2020 and it was canned in 2020.
0: Hey, That's interesting. I learned something every day. I didn't know that either. Unlike beer or cider, wine grapes only bloom and ripen once a year. So we only get one vintage. Hops grow once a year, they dry the hops, put them into pellets, and you can use the hop pellets in beer throughout the year, as well as brewers make multiple batches of beer monthly, yearly, you know, weekly, that sort of thing. There's not too many vintage beers out there. I think I've seen a couple, but those mostly referred to the fact that they were aged in barrel and not picked or harvested. Wine, it's really when it was harvested. That's kind of the the takeaway for vintage That's why most of the time wine per ounce will cost more than most other beverages. One shot a year harvest season in the Northern hemisphere will go August to November. That's most of most of the wine in the world is above the Northern Hemisphere. But harvest season in the Southern Hemisphere, so South America, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, is roughly March to May. So being a person who hasn't gone to the Southern Hemisphere yet, I have not experienced that March to May harvest, but I do hope to at some point. Colby definitely has. She did that trip Um a couple of times, I think.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of weird because you know that the seasons are opposite for the Northern and Southern hemisphere, but you just never think about it. So when I was applying to go work in New Zealand, it just never occurred to me that I was going to be there from March, February until May or June. And I would be doing multiple harvests in a year. So I would do what was called harvest hopping. So I would work for three to four months, maybe five months, and then take a month or two off and then do it again, then a few more months off and then do it again. It's one way to just get all your experience condensed rather than having to only do it once a year. You're able to do it maybe even three times in roughly a year.
0: And I would imagine that the Southern Hemisphere, as far as vintage goes, has a little easier job labeling it because since their harvest is in March to May, none of their fermentations should run over the next year but if we think about it their growing season then is from december november december through march unlike where ours is march through september their growing season goes over the year change but again that doesn't matter it what does matter is when it was picked harvested crushed that sort of also with vintage We, in the winemaking industry, sometimes describe vintages as hot, cold, rainy. There are different descriptors that we can use for vintages. A hot vintage means that your wine grapes grew in a season that was particularly, on average, hotter than normal. Now, with climate change and global warming or whatever tag you want to put on it, There is science-based evidence out there that our growing seasons are just getting hotter. And I think that's completely verified and true because even here in Washington, which is pretty close to about as far north as we get for growing grapes in the United States earlier and earlier in the year, and bud break has been happening earlier and earlier in the year, which... Especially in the eastern half of Washington state, that gets worrisome because we have early hot days, which can help with bud break, but we then get cold snaps and freezes, which then kill off our buds. So that is a gamble and happens quite frequently throughout different vintages. Some wineries and winemakers will describe your vintage as cold and rainy. Also, with climate change, those are happening a little bit more on a more frequent basis. But that means the region received too much rain, clouds, grapes might not fully ripen, maybe prone to rot or botrytis, which is considered the noble rot, and tend to deliver lower quality grapes. You get bunch rot, you get berry shrivel, you get all these types of disease, mold, disease pressures. This cold, rainy seasons is seen at least locally where we're at in the willamette valley a lot the willamette valley is kind of a weird rain infused area because in oregon there are two ranges the coastal range and the cascade range and in between those two mountain ranges lays the willamette valley and it's a great place to grow grapes it is phenomenal it's a great place to grow any crops really it's very fertile but it gets cloudy and rainy a lot and they are very prone to bunch rot. And when we have grapes on a sorting table, that is one of the things, depending on the varietal we are looking for to sort out. There are obviously some varietals as winemakers will tweak a little bit and leave some bunch rot in there and some berry shrivel in there just to add some vintage characteristics. Again, with vintage the other thing that comes up a lot wildfires happening more and more you see it a lot in california sonoma napa australia is seeing it a lot with their vintages getting these wildfires these grass fires out in the sagebrush and and grasslands this is impactful depending on research coming out now when the fire is and by when i mean during what point of the grape growing process, when we get to our viticulture episode, we will talk about there are some very distinct stages to grape growing. And so it depends when the fire hits and how much smoke sweeps through the vineyard, all those sorts of things and what type of material the fires are caused by. But that is definitely something that plagued us in 2020 was a wildfire year for the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Washington and Oregon and Northern California all fought with wildfires and deciding what to do with. Them. I know a couple of higher end Washington state wineries that just didn't have any fruit to their quality, and they decided that they would cancel the vintage completely. Now we are going to talk a little bit about quality of wine.
1: Yes, so, A lot of the time, the quality of wine begins in the vineyards, and if you have poor vineyard practices or even not enough education in viticulture, you may not be setting up your winemaking team for success. We will be doing a whole viticulture series in the very near future, so we will just briefly touch on it here, but viticulture is the study of grape cultivation. The duties of a viticulturist would be monitoring and controlling pests and diseases, fertilizing, irrigation, canopy management, monitoring fruit development characteristics. A lot of the winemakers will be a part of this as well, and they will be deciding when to harvest, how they do vine pruning during the winter months. Viticulturists are often very involved with winemakers because the winemakers are the ones that, well, like how we said before, winemakers are the jack of all trades. They need to know how the vineyards work, why they work the way they do, and what's not working for the vineyards. They're the ones that are making the decisions on how we need to have our canopy for these grapes. Are they getting too much sun? Are they getting not enough? And then also what varieties are working and what aren't
0: So I have a degree in viticulture and enology my university required me to take a lot of botany And in fact, my department is under what's called the Integrated Plant Sciences Department. So winemakers have to know what the wine, grape, and vine is doing, as well as working with the viticulturalists as far as trusting them, but knowing the market of what is happening, what is not happening. On a note on viticulture, I always say that your pure varietal wines is a sign of what your vineyard and viticulturist is doing. And then your wine blends are a sign of what your winemaker is doing. So if you want a good taste of the vineyard, I would say, taste those pure varietals in the winery. And then if you want to know kind of the winemaker skill and his flavor profile, taste his his red blends and his white blends.
1: So I think personally, viticulture vineyards are also an art, just like winemaking Is as well. When you see that there's a specific, like, single varietal from this one specific vineyard or an estate wine, you're, for the most part, uh, winemakers aren't really touching that. They're bringing it in, they're letting it do its thing. They are doing very, very little tweaks, if anything, to perfect this wine. Like what Joe said, if you are tasting a single varietal or a single vineyard, wine, you are getting more of just the viticulture vineyard side of it, which is really cool. And then there are obvious factors that will change your grapes, your vineyards, your vines that include climate, soil, any kind of hazards like bacteria, and then the pruning and the care. There's a lot that goes behind it, which is why we're going to do a whole series on this because it is pretty cool. And I have actually worked out in vineyards before when I was in New Zealand and our harvest was over. I didn't want to leave. So I decided to work out in the vineyards for a few months and just kind of understand what happens after. That was always my thing was I want to know what happened after. So what happened after harvest in winemaking? What happened after harvesting in the vineyards? When you're an intern, you see the big bulk of it all, but you don't know what happens before and after. And I think those are actually more important than what is happening during the harvesting or winemaking
0: i think that is completely true i remember in february one of my viticulture classes going out and pruning a block of of grapes you know learning how to prune i think that's very crucial because that pruning leads to a great vintage the following year thinking of like leaf thinning was one thing i never knew was a thing vineyards will remove leaves i knew one vineyard they had so much money they're one of the higher end ones here in washington state And they had a guy out there with a light detector that detected the intensity of lights. He was holding it against the grape clusters and individually leaf thinning so that grape had the specific amount of light that they thought it should have for their wine and their vintage. To me, that's way too much excess, but it's a science, just the same as winemaking can be a science. And what you do in the vineyard is a craft it's an art form we have 14 15 different types of trellising systems that's the bracing that the grapes are grown on is it rocky is it you know grapes like to grow on rocky soil there's a viticultural appellation here in Washington state and Oregon called the Rocks District of Milton Freewater but it is grown on a old ancient riverbed full of stones So yeah, and there's so many theories on where to plant that vineyard, where to grow that vineyard, all that kind of stuff when it comes to viticulture, that it is an art. It really is an art form.
1: Yeah. And that actually reminds me, one of the the things that actually got me into winemaking, even though I grew up with it, never even thought about it. But during one of my um, GIS classes, we had somebody come in and talk about how they use GIS, which is geographic information systems, sciences, studies, and how they use that to actually do vineyard soil sampling. And they can see several feet into the ground and see what kind of soils and how wet that soil is, where the well is for the water. And they can use that to determine a better place for vineyards or how to continue to have this one vineyard thrive. It's crazy what you can do in vineyards. And we're just barely scratching the surface for the U S in general. Like we are doing so many different studies and trying new things. And I think that's just awesome.
0: So long story short, we are definitely (laughs) into vineyards as much as we are into winemaking.
1: Yes. And so, Back to that, vineyards, viticulture, and enology really go hand in hand. So like Joe was saying earlier, he has a degree in viticulture and enology. If you were to go get a degree in this, you're going to get both. For the most part, you can't really get one or the other for a degree. For a certificate, maybe, yeah. You could do one or the other.
0: In the United States.
1: Yeah. And so if you're going to go get a degree, you're going to get it in viticulture and enology. So one is the study of grape cultivation. Enology is the science and study of wine and winemaking. Again, we will do a whole other series on enology and winemaking and all of that, because that's what this whole thing is about. (laughs) And then this just deals with the fermentation science and finishing wine. It focuses on wine chemistry, fermentation chemistry, and microbiology, and all the, for me, all the fun things. (laughs) For some people, maybe not.
0: And all the fun titles that we like to say that people go, wait, what? So it always gives us the chance to go, I'm a wine chemist.
1: Yeah. Make us sound a little smarter sometimes. (laughs) So from there, there are several different types of wineries. One of the things that actually blew my mind, and I never even knew this until I started working in wine, is that not all wineries, which are labels that you see on wine bottles, are an actual winery. There are so many different types of wineries. And from experience, we've had a custom crush, which is a winery that offers contract winemaking services to clients, services that may include processing fruit, cellaring, blending, bottling, lab analysis. So they are their own winery, but they are stationed at another winery.
0: That was my first job out of college was at a custom crush facility. And we had 14 or 15 wineries under the same roof. And we worked inside of four or five bonds. Bonds are the legal taxable winery that pays the taxes to the United States because they got to get their money too. So custom crush, that's the weird one. And there are a lot of wineries, parent wineries out there that will do custom crush on the side. I know, for example, the winery that Colby works at does custom crush, a little bit of custom crush on the side. As well as the last winery I worked at, I sold bulk wine in a style of custom crush.
1: So it's also kind of weird to explain and to understand. But when you see a label on a bottle, that doesn't always mean it's a different winery. So like for my personal example, the company that I work for right now, are one company, but we own, I think, nine different labels. So if you see this one label at the grocery store and another label, they could be from the same winery, from the same company making that wine. They could also be two different wineries at the same place making two different wines. It's super confusing. And it's something that I never realized until I got into the industry, But for most people who don't know this, if you see a label on a bottle, it may not actually be a winery or it could be one company owning multiple different quote unquote wineries.
0: So in the United States, there's a neat little trick that I found out. If you look at the back label, it has to say where it was bottled and who it was bottled by. So sometimes you will see a different winery's name on that bottled by. They get around it legally in the United States by saying bottled for such and such winery at this address. I've I'm the nerd enough that I'm going to go, let's type in that address to Google and see where it really is. Just because I want to investigate it. I'm very much guilty of this with the Costco brand. That's a warehouse store here in the United States. They have their own house brand, and I always want to know who's making making their wine on a winemaker side, because when I was looking it up, I wanted to sell Costco my bulk wine. But on the other side of it, just out of vain interest of who was making their wine.
1: And so sometimes Custom Crush is there because wineries aren't big enough to own their own winery and process and everything. They are only doing a couple of cases a year. Well, not a couple, but couple hundred to a few thousand maybe cases a year. And that's a pretty small winery. They don't need a whole multi-million dollar setup to be able to do this. They can pay another winery to store and to help process and everything. So it benefits both sides as well. And it well, does help them grow too.
0: One of my winery classes kind of one of the fall final projects was If I was to go start a 10,000 case winery out the door, I would need $4 million US dollars to go start that winery right now. That's buying the facility, pumps, people, everything, just to be a profitable 10,000 case winery, which is small.
1: Most people, when I say I work in wine, I want to be a winemaker. Their next question is, oh, are you going to own your own winery? And I always say, Probably not. I don't have a few million dollars laying around. Like you can definitely do, you know, the bathtub wine, everything like that. But if you want to be an established winery, you're going to have to have some money or you're going to have to know someone that does.
0: A lot of people run into that. And a lot of wineries are started by old investors that kind of want to start their own winery and want to figure out or go make wine and do that sort of thing. With sizes of wineries, you know, the smallest, it would be the boutique winery. Those wineries are typically wineries that produce less than 10,000 cases on an annual basis, which is considered boutique. That's a mom and pop sort of winery. That's the ones that you're going to run into on the roadside stands. Other terms that are associated with boutique wineries will include small run, limited production, handcrafted artisanal wines so it kind of flows with most terms that you'd find in the food processing industry or realm so that is boutique wines and then going up from there we would move into kind of the studios and cooperatives
1: yeah so i'm not too familiar with these at least Personally, I haven't really worked in any of these studios are a winery facility that allows multiple wineries to make and produce their own wine in the side of a single ownership facility, pretty similar to custom crush where there are multiple wineries in a facility slightly different though. And then winery co-ops are local growers selling their grapes to a regional winery. Then the winery produces markets, sells the wine, And these are common in regions with smaller vineyard sizes and lower wine prices. And then there are estate wineries as well. Um, I'm not sure if Joe hit on this or not, but estate wineries are wines made only with grapes from vineyards owned by the winery and production of wine takes place entirely on the winery's property. So when you see estate wine on a label, or if someone tells you this is the estate wine, What you're tasting means it was grown, picked, fermented, processed, everything in the same spot. Estate wineries, estate wines are pretty high-end, high-quality. They are taken care of. That's why they're so pretty when you pull up to a tasting room and you see these gorgeous rows of vineyards and you're wondering if those are real or fake. Those are mostly estate vineyards being grown on that property.
0: Not to mention, don't be afraid of part. If they're the vines along the parking lot, they understand that you're going to pick those grapes if you see them during harvest. I worked for an estate union <laughs> that ran rows of Syrah along the parking lot. We never picked them. We expected you guys to pick them, and because that was the purpose, honestly, at tasting rooms, we know you're going to pick the grapes, and that everybody's going to be all sly and like, hee hee. I want to taste the grape. Those vines are there for you to pick those grapes because they have a thousand acres or a hundred acres of that varietal somewhere else to make the wine. You're not damaging or hurting the winery by picking that cluster of grapes. Feel free to taste the grapes. It's fun.
1: And those vineyards are also way prettier than what they actually look like outside of the tasting room. Those are meant to look pretty, but just like we've been doing this entire time, we're deconstructing the romance of winemaking and viticulture.
0: (laughs) Here we are again.
1: So types of wineries can also depend on the size of your winery, and that refers to the tonnage. Uh, tonnage refers to the amount of grapes in tons that a winery crushes and ferments so sometimes we will talk about uh, wineries by cases or by tons I kind of go back and forth with this but depending on your winery if you are a small winery you're only going to be processing maybe 100 tons maybe 200 I know in previous wineries I've worked for or have people I know work for. They're a small to medium-sized winery. They process maybe 300 to 400 to 500 tons, which is kind of close to about 25,000 cases, more or less. That's not not an exact science, not an exact math right there. So when you get to like bigger wineries, large wineries, I, I know I work for a really large winery now, and I worked for a much smaller winery before. So what we were able to produce or process in one day at my new winery was what we processed the entire harvest at my last winery. Same. And, and it, it actually blew my mind to be able to like do the math for that. And it's crazy, but we are a very large winery that I work for now, whereas the company I worked for before was a small to medium-sized winery. They were small, but they were also one of the larger wineries in that area.
0: Yeah, when I worked with Kobe for Harvest, one tank was <laughs> half of my previous vintage. And I was the same way. Washington has a couple of big wineries, but it's a lot of mom and pop small wineries. And we both got lucky to start our careers in the more boutique or smaller winery side. Speaking of this case to, and tonnage kind of descriptor of wineries, I tend to look at it like this winemakers and seller people who actually get their hands into the wine, along with viticulturists, describe it by tonnage. You always ask how many tons did you crush? That's kind of the boasting factor of wineries. And then the marketers and tasting room side describe it by packaged goods, case size. When you read like wine enthusiasts or even wine business They will describe it by wineries, by caseload, by package and product. I can tell you from experience in Silicon Colby that the average gallonage at crush is about 180 gallons per ton, give or take 50 gallons or so on either side, depending on how you're crushing it. That gallonage does not equal bottles. You cannot do the math out of that gallonage because of all of, you know, you got an empty valve, a a hose, all that kind of stuff drains out onto the floor, poor cellar hands that dump a ton of wine out on the floor. You're going to have waste. If the average person who didn't ever work in a winery saw how much wine, hit the floor in a winery that was my biggest shock in a winery was when I walked out there and I was like wait you are just rinsing the wine out that's good wine how do we save that that precious wine and the winemakers are just like it it is what it is it can run to 10% of your crush volume equals loss before you get to packaged goods
1: and depending on the size of the winery these winemakers take this into consideration they know to an extent how much this tonnage will produce, but they also will do the math to know how much we're planning on losing. And for smaller wineries, the more you lose, the harder it is. Like you need to keep every single ounce that you have. Whereas for larger wineries, it's not that big of a deal because in comparison, they're going to be about the same percentage. And mm-hmm. for me, like what Joe is I had such a hard time. My first lab internship was for a really large winery. And they would have me fill up a 250 mil bottle and dump it and then do it again. And I'm like, but that equals like if I do this three times, that's a whole bottle of wine I'm dumping down. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but that that doesn't mean anything to us. One bottle of wine is nothing. Whereas I'm like over here freaking out. I'm like, well, we could use that bottle of wine for something. <laughs> like, no, don't worry about it.
0: I was the same way. In in the Custom Crush facility, same thing. I was like filling the 50 mils, 250 mils of wine just for our daily tasting samples. On the flip side, at the smaller estate winery that I worked at before working with Colby, I was draining valves into five-gallon buckets to capture that wine to make sure because we were counting bottles if i could save a a case of wine that's 200 more bucks or 180 more dollars that we just saved the winery and so in the smaller wineries that is a bigger deal and the blessing is usually in smaller wineries you have less seller staff less people touching the wine so you can train them properly as far as management goes as for what you want as a winery it is difficult sometimes when you have people come in with that come from bigger wineries to smaller wineries that don't consider that waste or lost profit so luckily that's where the winemaker comes in and kind of says hey guys you need to knuckle down we need to save this but i was stunned at some of the larger wineries where we're like what what we can we don't need to dump this you just poured a little bit in a glass why are we dumping it put it back in the tank thinking 250 <laughs> mils but She's right. When it comes to 10,000 gallon tank, what's 250 milliliters, it's not enough to worry about. It costs more in Colby's time to go dump it back in the tank than it does that she is saving the winery.
1: Right. And it's just depending on winemaking style and who you are and what the winery is trying to provide. I'm thankful that I went from a large winery, learning everything to a smaller winery, learning all the little small details, ins and outs, and then coming back to a bigger winery where I'm able to bring those smaller winery details with me. And I have been able to save my current company, you know, a few gallons here or there, which may not seem like a lot in their eyes, but it does eventually add up. I mean, if we're pulling a bottle of wine for each tank and then we're dumping it down the drain that's going to add up if i'm doing that every single week so it's a give and take
0: (laughs) now let's change courses again because this is like we said this is our weird kind of setup podcast for the rest of our series that we're going to do let's dive from those winery sizes and caseloads and tonnage to types of wine that we might see We briefly talked about this last podcast a little bit when we talked about in the Sensations podcast about dry and sweet, what that means as far as residual sugar compared to perceived sweetness, that sort of thing. But we're going to talk about now sparkling wine. Again, we went into this a little bit more in detail uh, in the previous episodes, and we're going to do an episode on sparkling wine real quick here because both Colby and I have genuine, decent experience on two different styles of sparkling wine. Colby has experience with it right now. That's what she's making, what her winery mostly makes is sparkling wine.
1: That's literally what we made the last couple of weeks too. (laughs) So when we mean right now, we mean right now. (laughs) Right
0: now. And then I, before I went back to college and got my degree, I was a Riddler. I literally got a job In a sparkling wine, winery, riddling bottles, which is turning it. Like I said, we'll get into it. Sparkling wine is kind of its own animal. We're going to dive into that. But let's talk a little bit about port and ice wine. Those are two dessert wines. I love dessert. I'm a fat man, so I like dessert. And I like to pair wine with food especially port and ice wine ice wine is a late harvest sweet wine that can only be made when the grapes naturally freeze in the vineyard and it's not just once we're talking about freezing cycles so those grapes freeze and thaw during the day and freeze again and those cycles turn into the good quality grapes that an ice wine would be popular varietals In ice wine, include Riesling, Cabernet Franc in the United States. That's mostly what we make it as. In Canada, they use a varietal called Vidal Blanc, which I've never worked with, to be labeled an ice wine. This is crucial. In the United States, to be labeled an ice wine, and I think in Canada, grapes must be picked and pressed while naturally frozen. This only happens in cool climates, hence why Canada is one of the leaders in ice wine where temperatures get below 20 degrees Fahrenheit or negative seven degrees Celsius in the late, late harvest period. And when we're talking late harvest, that's what I was talking about earlier. January, February, still the previous year's vintage, but January, February. Canada, like I said, is the largest producer of ice wine followed by Germany, Austria, and the United States. United States, it'll happen in the Finger Lakes region. We don't usually get cold enough in Washington or Oregon or Northern California to produce a genuine ice wine. There is a winery near me that produces or has in the past produced an ice wine about once every three years or four years. I always call ice wine for the vineyard and the winery a gamble because you're either going to end up with beautiful ice wine grapes or rot, rotten fruit on the vine. That's almost the only two choices, viticulturally and winemaking wise. So if you're going to choose to make ice wine, I would suggest doing it with a smaller block of grapes. And that's the same reason why you'll buy ice wine in the store in a half bottle at the same price as a regular full bottle of wine. So a little, little half bottle of wine is going to cost you that 40 to $70 range for ice wine as compared to a Riesling, which will cost you $40 to $70 for a full bottle of still wine. The juice is super, super sweet when it is uh, fermented because they are pressed frozen grapes. The press times that I would use when I made an ice wine, it usually took about 12 hours of pressing to get the thick, sugary, syrupy grape juice out of the grapes during pressing. They take to ferment, it takes about two to six months, where with white wine, you're at like two to four weeks. And then because the juice is so sweet, you're going to have a low alcohol because the yeast that you have to use just has a lower alcohol tolerance when they're producing it. And so they die off at a lower alcohol range. And you will get... A higher, obviously, because these can't produce it, a higher residual sugar. Remember, we talked about that in the last episode. So high residual sugar for still even still white wines, five to 12 grams per liter. Ice wine is going to give you 160 to 220 grams per liter of sugar. That's syrup. That's got to be close to syrup. It is so sweet. And so like when I drink it, I typically will pour An ounce maybe a shot you know in in a glass and sip it it's definitely a sipping wine it's definitely a super sweet dessert wine it's awesome it's a phenomenally tasteful and good wine it's really hard to make you're gonna get i guess for flavor profile you're gonna get lemon honeysuckle definitely honey maybe some apricot pineapple kind of just those light sweet 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 fruit wines Then from there, let's talk about port port comes from, you guessed it, Portugal, and they kind of developed this weird way of winemaking traditional ports are foot stomped. That is one of the interesting, cool things I think about port is they've kind of kept up the traditional ways. I watched one documentary one time or a YouTube video or something about how they're trying to create a foot stomping machine to mimic foot the action of a foot that it takes when it stops scrapes i thought that was kind of weird i say put it in a basket press or a bladder press and let's go but i'm more of an impatient american it is the most famous fortified wine it's a blend made from a range of styles it can be white rosé red tawny each style has its own unique taste i would definitely recommend to try them all and to maybe take a small experiment if you have kind of A fun time when you want to buy a bunch of wines, buy a few different styles of ports and taste them together in the same night or evening. It's a fun time. Well, at least by the end, you're having fun. But it's an interesting taste experiment to see the craft and the styles that go into each of these ports. Ports are stored in hot houses, warm. Port originally came out of because they didn't have refrigeration and they shipped it in barrels on ships in the hot seasons to the UK and France and the United States. They made a wine that wouldn't spoil in hot weather. And that's what this high alcohol port was because, really, little to their knowledge, when it was originally created, no microbes would survive in that high alcohol environment. If you want to really think about it, port comes in a few different characteristics or vintages, I guess. Tawny port, which is a barrel-aged port that usually you will see in the stores listed at 5, 10, 15, 20, and 30 years. Those Those are vintage. They're single vintage Tawny ports. And Tawny refers to the color. Like we talked about in the Sensation podcast, color comes from... A bunch of different areas but for the most part in port it comes from oxidation and that's from the aging right they're uh, 20 years old you can get a vintage port a labeled vintage port which is usually in the ruby color right red and that is a single vintage port that is picked from like normal wine that particular vintage and it drinks well in the first five years And then it will be good up to 50 years old. Um, I've tasted a few ports that were older than 50. They were in the seventies to hundred years old and they were still good, but 50 years is probably about the nice range for it. I personally, I personally would say you can get a Rosé like wine. You can get a Rosé port. Rosé ports are going to give you those light fruits, strawberries and everything else, but they're going to be higher alcohol. And then you have Ruby, which is a basic red port, and that's going to be one of the most common ones. Ruby and Tawny, I think, are the most common that you're going to see. And then you have one that is late-bottled vintage port, which is a basically a ready-to-drink vintage, you know, single vintage port. So all of these ports are going to be high alcohol. The way I make them, or I would make the fake American-style port or port-style wine, as we would label it, would be I would ferment a wine to have the residual sugar standard that we need for a port. And then I, I would chuck in a spirit made from the same varietal of grapes, so a distilled spirit, and stop the fermentation process that way. And so that port would have, or port style wine would have the same characteristics that you would want in a Ruby or Tawny, but it would be done in a more abridged American style than waiting and letting it cellar for 30 to 50 years because we're American. We don't want to wait. We're impatient people, honestly. And obviously, I'm not speaking for all Americans. I'm speaking mostly for myself, but it tends to be the world's opinion. So we'll go with it. Along with this, we have defined quite a few terms, but the one that always seems to come up in conversation outside of these, especially when talking to someone about wine, winemaking in the restaurant side is the term sommelier. You know, people will describe themselves as a sommelier going towards the restaurant side.
1: And I get asked all the time, when I mention that I work in wine production and I'm the enologist and I'm on my path becoming a winemaker, it's either one or two questions. One, are you going to start your own winery? Or two, if I'm going to be a Somme. Or if I explain my job to someone who's not completely aware or know anything about winemaking, they will ask me if that is what a psalm does. Although winemakers and psalms both taste wine, the process and meaning behind it is two completely different ends of the spectrum.
0: I'll start it out this way. A sommelier is kin to the maitre d' in a restaurant and the winemaker is the chef they are two different sides of the coin but necessary in order to make a complete coin a sommelier is definitely different than a winemaker but a sommelier can be a winemaker and a winemaker can be a sommelier in england great britain i think they consider them masters of wine it's just a different term but Mostly in the United States, France, and probably in a lot of areas of the Southern Hemisphere that have adopted the French terms, they call them sommeliers. To be a true sommelier, there are kind of four levels. There is what's called the Court of Sommeliers, at least here in the United States. And the Court of Sommeliers is the certifying institution, I guess, and the testing institution. The four levels are introductory, certified, advanced, and master sommelier. In the wine industry, we call them psalms because it's a big word and multiple syllables. And in this day and age, we don't like to say big words or multiple syllables. So we call them psalms.
1: Also, psalmiers is not spelt like it sounds. So most people just call it psalms because it's way easier than trying to pronounce it the way it's spelled, which is wrong.
0: Or French. French like to add extra letters and as far as English translations would go. To be the master of a master sommelier, the Court of Sommiers has awarded 269 people the level of master sommelier since 1969 when it was established. It's a super hard thing to become. So if somebody says that they're a master sommelier, it's impressive. As a winemaker, I'm impressed because I long for the knowledge as far as vintage and appellations that they have to go through. There's a great documentary on Netflix called Psalm that goes through and shows you the life of someone studying to be a master sommelier. If somebody says they're a sommelier, look for a little inside knowledge here. Look for a pin on their lapel. There are four pins from the court of sommeliers that signify what level they have accomplished in their sommelier testing each testing level there is a written and a practical examination each getting progressively harder when you get to the master level according to the documentary that I watched I'm not a master sommelier so I've never been through that process and I probably will never be through that process
1: the idea of testing for that just scares me I don't know if I could do it at all (laughs) (laughs) I would just freeze
0: (laughs) It's probably the same way I felt when I was going through my wine microbiology exams that took me quite a long time. And I had to – there was a lot. It was a lot.
1: Didn't have to do that either, so I'm good.
0: (laughs) There is a lot of testing. But to be the master sommelier, you have to go through a blind tasting. And when you taste that wine, you have to say the vintage at least. You have to at least say the vintage, the varietal, the appellation, and some tasting notes on that wine. I've tasted – a lot of wine as a winemaker, a lot of wine through fermentation. I think I've been to the point in my expertise, I could probably describe or come close to what step during fermentation it is, but I could not come close to telling you a finished wine from California compared to a finished wine from Mendoza, Argentina. I would not know, but these sommiers do. And that's where their expertise comes in. And they are necessary in the wine industry. A winemaker differs. Obviously, we've described winemakers a lot. I am one. Colby is striving to be one eventually. Um, Maybe our paths will cross again where we're both one. Hopefully in life, that would be awesome. But to be a winemaker, usually you go through four years of college or more uh, like I did. And I described in the first podcast of how I became a winemaker. Depending on the college in the US, the coursework may differ. But mine was evenly split, like we said earlier, between viticulture and enology. I went through a lot of botany courses and I went through a lot of wine chemistry courses and wine science courses. It's benefited me greatly because it gives me appreciation, even though I work mostly in the cellar, gives me an appreciation for those that are viticulturists to what they do. There's also an option of working your way up in the wine industry. There are great winemakers out there that haven't been to a lick of college or certification courses for winemaking, but they started as a seller hand and 30, 40 years later, they're a winemaker and they're some of the best winemakers in the world. are like that. You know, it's akin to the old apprenticeship programs. Originally, when I started working in the wine industry, that's what I thought I had to do. I thought I had to find a winemaker that liked me, stick with him, work through 30 harvests or whatever, and eventually become his assistant winemaker, you know, or whatever it is. That's not just generally the case. I know in, I know somewhat in Europe that there are similarly, there are certificates for winemaking and things like that, but let us know, send us an email or whatever about how it might differ in other regions of the world. We're obviously biased to the United States because that's where we live. And that's what we go through. In the US there isn't an overall governance or exam that must be passed in order for you to become a winemaker. It really is up to the individual states and the institutions that you go to. But like I said, most college coursework in the United States that provide a viticulture and enology or an enology fermentation science program, most of that coursework is very 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 similar. The main difference between a som and a winemaker like I said earlier, is the winemaker knows the practical. They have been in the cellar. They know how to ferment things. They know the science behind it. They know what the wine should taste like throughout it. And they're trying to make the product, the best product they can. The Somme knows all of the different wines that have been produced. Why, you know, if those, like we are saying earlier, if those veggies are hot, cold, fires, all that, they know in those different regions what that was. They're the salesmen. They really are the guys that we got to work with in restaurants and in higher end wine shops and grocery stores. If they don't like your wine, it's going to be hard to sell it to those higher end restaurants. So learning as a winemaker how to deal with that or how to work with those guys is a big task and a great task to deal with. But I believe that is going to wrap up our education series or and podcasts of who we are and tasting and all that kind of stuff. The next few podcasts, we're going to start to get into the nitty gritty of winemaking. We're going to get dive into some more very narrow specific topics. If there's something that we may have missed or you would like us to cover and go into more depth, please shoot us a email at grape to glass pod at gmail.com.
1: We have also started several social media accounts where you're able to reach us and follow us along in this journey, walk with us. We'll be posting upcoming episodes, photos of things we may have talked about in episodes maybe photos of ourselves if anyone wants to actually see that
0: charts Um, and graphs that we find interesting (laughs) that might help explain things it might
1: be a little bit nerdy of a social media account but oh it definitely will (laughs) if you would like to follow us you can find us on instagram and twitter at grape to glass pod you will see our little thumbnail as the profile picture and We just want to thank everyone for listening and supporting us. It's been really cool to be able to see how many people around the U.S. and outside the U.S. are listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, follow, share. And if you feel inclined, we'd really appreciate five stars. If you don't believe we deserve five stars, please let us know what we can do to improve that.
0: And we are definitely looking at those. We read them out there all the time and want to know what you think we can improve on. We, we're we going to do it. We're young and new. We're a young little baby podcast, and we are wanting to know what people want to hear. And so we're going to definitely dive into those comments, podcasts, and those help us get seen. They help us when people are searching for wine podcasts, help us get it higher in those searches. So that way we can Uh, get a few more listeners if you think we're good enough to get a few more listeners, which I hope you do.
1: Yeah, we are continuously learning and growing as we're doing this. We are just a couple of winemakers who thought this would be fun and to help educate. We want to be able to do that. And if there is something that we need to clarify, or if you want us to go into something, or if you may know something that we don't, we are more than happy to take that information. We we want that we want to be able to grow with everybody
0: definitely we thank you guys so much we are gonna stick on the every other week publishing for now just because it's just two of us doing it and it takes time to do all these different things for it as well as working our jobs but please please subscribe like kobe said give us a rating and we will see you guys next